Welcome to a Neon Jazz interview with the very wise and talented David White. He's the New York City-based trombonist and leader of the David White Jazz Orchestra. He recently spoke with Neon Jazz about growing up in Buffalo, New York, and the jazz going down then, running his own record label called Mr. Shepherd Records, and his jazz education, recent Kickstarter campaign to finance his new album that's coming out on April 8th, 2014, called The Chase, and it's a great album, along with much, much more. Dig it, kids. Hey! Hey, it's Joe Domino with Neon Jazz. How's everything? Hey, I'm good, man. How are you? Good. Hey, thanks for joining me on the uh, interview. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Without any further ado, let me go ahead and start. You were born and raised in Buffalo, correct? Yes. Okay. What was it about Buffalo that kind of infused this love of jazz and music in you? There were a lot of musicians uh, that were active at the time uh, that I was growing up. It used to be, um, I mean, this is a little bit before my time, but it used to be a major stop on the touring circuit for people coming through. And there used to be, you know, clubs on every corner, a great place where you could really, I mean, now everyone wants to come to New York, but there was a time uh, where you could be a very successful local musician, make a good living play with all the people who were coming through and there were still um the echoes of that when i was growing up and i had a chance to play in a lot of bands uh big bands in particular um professional big bands from a very young age and that's really i think the best training i could have had absolutely what about your family how influential were they on you in cultivating this love of music uh, my grandfather especially loved music. He loved jazz. Uh, he got me interested in it in an early age. Uh, he played guitar. Uh, we had a couple of musicians in the family. Uh, no one, you know, no one pursued it to a professional stage, but there was music playing all the time. It was a big part of our lives growing up. Uh, in our house, there was a lot of uh, gospel music. There was a lot of Motown, and you know that was a big influence on me, like growing up hearing that. Right on. So, you started out playing the recorder in the fifth grade, took up the trumpet in sixth, and settled on the trombone. Why the trombone? I, I originally was drawn to the trumpet, and, you know, I, I was doing pretty well with it, but uh, my teacher, uh, Ms. Grabowski, you know, she advised me, you know, you, your embouchure is such that I think that you would be a good trumpeter, but you would really go far. Uh, on low grass. So, you know, you know, beginner band is around the time those conversations start happening where, well, you know, this person has ability, but if they shifted just slightly in this area, you know, they could go much further, uh, especially for brass where, like, your physical makeup determines, well, are you a, a trumpeter or a tuba player? So uh, just, just the embouchure was mostly it, but I knew I definitely uh, wanted to play brass. Right on. So at the age of 14, you started playing in a big band led by baritone saxophonist Macy Favor. How was that experience? It sounds like that was probably pretty influential for you at that time. It was a huge influence. It was a huge influence for me. Uh, mostly because, you know, I mean, you're, you're a young man, you're a teenager, and you're trying to find out you know, how to be, how to how to conduct yourself, you know, how to... And it's a big growing up process being around people that you look up to and, 
you know, I found myself in this big band, you know, all the guys were much older than me. And they were just great musicians who I could look up to, but you also find out, you know, how to carry yourself when you're when you're a musician or or just uh, just a person in general. Just it really it was influential on me uh, in a lot of ways, musically and personally. So after high school, you spent a year at the University of Buffalo. Uh, you studied with uh, classic trombonist Richard Myers. Then you went to Purchase College. And then you got a bachelor's and a master's degree. And there's a lot, a lot there in that piece of bio. But my first question out of that is, what is it like to get that kind of education in music? How does that lend to you as a player? on your art form uh, to the exclusion of almost everything else. And B, uh, especially in a music conservatory such as Purchase, and we had uh, dance, theater, etc., uh, you're in an environment where the arts are the most important thing, bar none. Sure. But, you know, if you were at another type of college, you know, maybe you know the football team would be the most important thing, bar none. But it's just an environment where you have all these amazing, talented people. They're all in one place at one time, and the most important thing going on is, you know, their next show, uh, their artwork that they're doing, the installation that they're doing, the dance that they're doing. Uh, so that was, that was, it was just a huge incubator, you know. It was just the time to, to really focus on figuring out, you know, who you are as a musician, uh, time to focus on like developing the technique and the craft, and it was just a big influence on me. So it sounds like studying under someone like Richard Myers, a classic trombonist, that was probably a lot like being in that first big band. You probably learned quite yes. a bit, a lot of growth. Yes. Um, so let me ask you this. You have 16 players in your band, correct? Yes. Okay. What is it like to have such... As, as it says in your bio, and I can, I can tell on the CD, very polished and first-rate. What's it like to have such a large ensemble to play with every day? It's, it's amazing. It's, you know, you do so much work uh, to put yourself in a position to play music. You do so much work to prepare the music, to write the music, to put together a rehearsal. I mean, just the logistics of putting together a rehearsal of 16 professional musicians, all of whom have a busy performance schedule, busy teaching schedule. Like, just the fact that we're able to meet in a room at the one time is a feat of logistics. <laughs> so you do all of this uh, legwork to put it all together, and then it, it makes it all worthwhile Like when you hear that sound. It's like something that you've imagined in your head, it's coming to life. And, like, in vibrant color. That's with cool. all these great players. Right on. So it's, it's incredibly satisfying. Yeah, incredibly. absolutely. It sounds like it. So, 2011, Flashpoint was your first album. How did that album treat you? Uh, what, what do you mean? Like, how, what was the like, result? Yeah, like, how was it received by the public? How did you feel as a growth movement from that? Just kind of how, what happened after the release of that album? I, you know, I was talking to one... Um, so uh, one editor at a magazine, and I was telling him, you know, I'm putting out my own music, my own album. 
and he was saying, you know, this is really your your doctorate. And that's kind of how I felt about it, in that, you know, I've already been to conservatory. Like, I felt like this was my chance to make my, you know, my musical statement of, you know, this is the point that I've reached so far. You know, I've been able to write this music. I've been able to marshal all the resources to put together a finished product. And I felt like it was sort of like my, my thesis statement. Right on. So, Mr. Shepherd Records, you obviously run. Um, yeah. That's a great story. I read, if you wouldn't mind verbalizing that for me uh, so the audience can hear it. How did Mr. Shepherd, how did that come about? It was um, a nickname that my grandfather gave me. Uh, he, he always called me Mr. Shepherd. He never called me David. He had um, nicknames for all of us, really. Uh, you know, all my cousins. You know, he always, he was the type of guy who, you know, you, like you almost wouldn't know that you had a, a given name. He was, everyone would have their nickname and that was their, that was their name as far as he was concerned. <laughs> and he called me uh, Mr. Shepherd uh, because of David in the Bible being a shepherd boy. So I was sort of, a, you know, a young, uh, maybe a little mischievous kid, you know, and so he had that image of me as a, a young, a young shepherd boy out in the field. Nice. Very nice. So, between 2011's Flashpoint and the release of The Chase here in 2014, what have you done in between those time periods? It's, it's been a time of development. Uh, I feel like I'm a lot more focused in my writing. Uh, I feel that my writing uh, sort of taken on more of, it's speaking more clearly with my own voice, I think. I think uh, I really like you know, the tunes on the first record, I thought, um, you know, I was proud of the work that I did, but I think on this new record, it, it's more definitive and, and with my, you know, my own style. Absolutely. So I think there's just been a lot of development. You know, the one thing that I really like by spinning tunes and having that that uh, free will to put whatever I want on my show, I love the, 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 the hard bop and the bebop movements. I, I love a nice mix on my show. The beauty of your album is that you take a lot of elements from the big band sound and from different eras and you blend it so well together. I mean, when you when this when this album comes on, it's an immediate bam right to the ears. And I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but I want you to kind of talk to me about what went into this album. What how did you produce such a sound and such a feeling and a mood in this album? I think I think it's like when you're watching, you know, a movie or reading a book. You know, the person's telling the story, but it relies on the listener having like common references. So, like, not everything in the plot is going to be spelled out, but it can be sort of referring to either a cultural reference or referring to another another uh, thing that's going on in society. So, like, with the big band, I'm not saying, oh, well, here comes, like, a Tom Basie riff. But, like, it's, it's set up in such a way that it's making a reference to something else in the music in order to make its own point. So I've sort of blended a lot of elements like that, Basie in particular, uh, Woody Herman, Gerald Wilson, uh, with that sort of writing style, but not 
I'm sort of not duplicating what they're doing. I'm sort of referring to it in a way to make my own point. Absolutely. So, you you got this funded through Kickstarter, correct? Yes. How cool is that? It's amazing. It is so amazing uh, to have people who, just to have, like, tangible support of, of what you're doing. Like, you know, it's one thing to have people say, well, you know, I, I, you know, I like this song. It's another thing to say, you know, I like your music and here's $50. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very gratifying that people, you know, had faith in me to produce the music because, you know, with Kickstarter, you're funding something that you will produce. So it's like, well, you know, David, we, we like your music and we have faith in you to produce something great. And, you know, here's a check. You know, that's, I mean, what's better than that? You know, and the people, I just got so much support coming from all corners. People who, uh, you know, I haven't seen since uh, grammar school in some cases. Yeah. You know, people from the other side of the globe who I've never met. Uh, it's, it's just really, really gratifying to have that type of support. The beauty of the internet and mixing that with a creative individual like you is that you're almost creating a doctrine within itself. That's the cool thing about Kickstarter. Because mm-hmm. my next question here was going to be how you're going to promote this, but the great thing about Kickstarter is is that it's already been promoted, and then you get to make it, and then you go into the second wave of promotion, which is totally cool. So. Right, exactly. It's like you have your built-in fan base already, like like your built-in people who are already, you know, you don't really have to even ask to spread the message, you know, because they're, they're a part of it. Like a Kickstarter backer is a part of the process, and they're invested in it. Absolutely. So they, they want it to exceed as much as you do. Absolutely. So, you know, that type of person... Uh, you don't even have to ask them to, you know, tell your friends. They're, they're already blasting it out. Absolutely. So, I've heard this said several times, and, I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, that you're a force in jazz these days. How do you feel about that? I'm incredibly flattered to be uh, uh, considered a force at all to, uh, in jazz or anything. I think if I've made an impact... Or in if someone if someone is touched by something I've done, then I, I'm just really flattered by that. That's the the end goal of everything that I do. Excellent. So you live in Queens, correct? Yes. Okay. Where do you gig? Do you gig in Queens, any of the boroughs, or do you go into Manhattan? How does that work for you? Mostly Manhattan. Uh, uh, some spots in Brooklyn uh, we've frequented. Uh, Queens, uh, the park in Queens that I live in uh, is Far Rockaway, which is, you know, the furthest possible point you can be in New York City before you're, you know, in the ocean. It's a, it's a, it's really, it's really, it's really nice out here. It's on the edge of the water, but it doesn't, you can see the Manhattan skyline, but it's like you're sort of in between Manhattan and the edge of the world. So... It's sort of my way to be away from the hustle bustle of the city to have time to sort of collect myself. But most of our gigs are, you know, in the city itself. Beautiful. So some of your heroes in jazz um, influences J.J. Johnson, Ray Anderson, Slide Hampton, Curtis Fuller. Um, Mm -hmm. Who inspires you the most in the jazz world, modern, 
And and why is why is that? Uh, uh, trombone specifically. Yeah, trombone or in any instrument. I would say uh, JJ because he he set such a high standard for how the trombone should be played. And there's really no one before him who had uh, that level of, you know, just virtuosic ability on the trombone and precision. I think, um, I think as trombonists, sometimes, you know, maybe we're not really expected to know how to play or we're not really expected to know how to produce a clean sound or our instrument or be conversant in jazz language and... With the standard of J.J. Johnson, he, he blows that all out of the water, you know. Uh, just, you know, complete command of the instrument, complete command of the bebop language. It, it's the gold standard for anyone who ever picks up a trombone. I think ever. Yeah, right on. So if you could, if you could go back in time and meet one musician and talk to them or watch them play, who would it be? Absolutely, it would be Duke Ellington. Because I, I would love to have his advice on what it is to be an orchestra leader, what it is to be a composer, what it is to deal with current events uh, that are happening through music. You know, so much of his music was a commentary on the world around him. Uh, what it is to get to the level of success where you're not, you know, just a performing artist, but uh, who's someone who's doing diplomacy around the globe uh, through his art form. Uh, so I would definitely, uh, I would give almost anything to have that type of conversation with Ellington. Right on. So uh, w another hypothetical here, if you, if you could travel into the future 20, 30 years down the line, open up a jazz magazine and read about your career, what would you want it to say? I would want it to say that this was a person who uh, encouraged and supported other artists and helped younger artists, artists in particular, uh, someone who funded scholarships and did clinics and things like that. And I would like it to be said that I was someone who figured out a way to produce his own music independently and shared that knowledge with the rest of the community. So, uh, so I would like to have had the impact of, you know, not only my own music being out there, but, you know, sharing the tools and knowledge that I've learned through that process with other people to help them get their music out there. So do you live with any regrets at all? Uh, yes. I mean, so, I mean, I think I try to learn from my mistakes and like I've made, I've made many, <laughs> I've made many and I try to learn from them. And so I wouldn't say that I have no regrets. I would say that, you know, given experiences that I've had, I would make some different decisions. Mm -hmm. But having made the original decisions, you know, I've learned and, and grown from that, hopefully. Right on. So speaking of experiences, what was it like to give your autograph out for the first time? It was surreal. I'm like, wait, you sure you want my <laughs> autograph? <laughs> Very cool. So, um, have you ever played in Kansas City? No, I haven't had the pleasure. I was just curious, um, since, since we're based here. Um, you know, the one thing that, that struck me, and I, and I asked some musicians about this, and I don't believe it, but you hear it sometimes. If anybody were to say to me, 
Jazz is dead. I would give them your CD. And what do you, what do you think about that? I think there's kind of this misnomer about the current crop of musicians that are out there. Because as far as I'm concerned, I, I feel like jazz is alive and thriving as well as it was 60 years ago. I, I agree with that. I think people are... I think there's a lot of pining away for um, the so-called jazz age where jazz was a force in pop music and pop culture. Mm -hmm. And that time has passed, but that doesn't mean that jazz as an art form is dead. I would say the opposite is true. And I really think that, you know, if jazz hadn't made that transition from, you know, being a force in pop culture to being a serious art music, you know, serious but joyful, yeah. and I think it would probably be a trend that had come and gone. Like you would say, well, you know, what was jazz, this thing? Well, it, happened, it was a fad back in the 20s, and, you know, no one deals with that anymore. Right. I think um, in light of that, I really, I, I'm not part of the crowd that pines away for that time, but rather I'm part of the crowd that wants to take the foundations from that time and, you know, build something new on top of it. Speaking of foundations, I love your uh, who you thank and kind of your thoughts on the future to say that you can't wait till uh, your, your sons are playing in your band with you. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what's the last song or album you listened to before we talked? The last album I listened to, uh, I've been listening to a lot of phrase and worship music lately. Uh, I listened to a live album by Smokey Norfolk. I think in jazz, the last thing that I listened to was um, the uh, Joe Henderson Big Band album, which is just masterful, just masterful writing, masterful playing throughout that album. My old teacher, Jim Pugh, is on that. Cool. Uh, along with John Faddis also. That's, that's one of the most masterful examples of, of big band writing and playing I've ever heard. Wow. Right on. Um... If anybody wanted to get kind of an insight into who you are in the length of brevity in the 21st century notion of Twitter, can you tell me who you are in 144 characters? Wow, that's a challenge. <laughs> I would say I am, let's see, I would say I'm a sincere musician who wants their music to to sort of um, who wants your music to touch your heart and make your life better in some way well I think you're doing yeah. that well, thank you David thank you very much it was a pleasure talking with you oh, thank you likewise continued success alright thank you Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the USA, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to the very talented David White for his time and insight into his craft and the world of jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or for all things Neon Jazz, visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.